The birth of Jesus from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem, because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged, and who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in bands of cloth, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. In that region there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace among those whom he favors. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the manger. When they saw this, they made known what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. It's good to see so many of you here and and, uh, so many visitors, family, friends uh, joining us this evening. Um, It's been a while since we've had so many folks here in the the sanctuary and, and it is just good to see you all worshiping here. Well, our Christmas text that uh, Michelle read for us this evening uh, probably wasn't too much of a surprise. When you come Christmas Eve, you probably uh, plan on hearing either from Luke or Matthew, you plan on hearing the Christmas story. Um, It's one we expect to come on Christmas Eve or Christmas morning. Maybe uh, you're like me and you can't hear that text without uh, imagining Linus taking center stage and finally dropping the blanket and and reciting uh, the scripture for us. 
The story leads us to a place we are very comfortable with. We've imagined the story maybe hundreds of times in Christmas pageants and pictures, maybe on Christmas cards you got that, that had some version of that on the card. Or every time we see a nativity scene. There are actually quite a few nativity scenes just around here at the church. I think outside there's one, and there's one in the gathering area, and there's one back here. And you just kind of can't get through here without seeing some nativity scene. You probably, maybe you have them at home. Maybe you've been putting them together. Uh, Maybe you have some kind of tradition around that um, manger scene and putting that together. Well, over this Advent season, I said at the the outset, we've been looking at some practices, some things that are a part of all of our celebrations and how we might take those opportunities to think in in a very intentional way about God's gift. And so uh, the first week we talked, of course, about waiting, Uh, something we've done over the last month, something uh, our kids have been doing maybe patiently, maybe not so patiently, Um, I'll I'll let my kids tell you how their waiting is going later. Um, We talked about how the waiting presents opportunities to stop and think about how God is also waiting on us, waiting on our response, waiting for us to to follow. But we also kind of flipped that word, and you, you maybe when you go to a restaurant, you have a waiter And that's a different term, somebody that serves. And so we talked about what might it mean for us to wait or to serve those around us. The next thing we talked about was being at the table. Maybe many of you have either started sitting around the tables with family or friends, or in the next couple of hours or next couple of days, you will be gathering around tables and you will be sharing fellowship. You will be sharing these intimate experiences with your loved ones. You will be celebrating and you will be renewing uh, relationships and, you know, it's family, so sometimes there's some uh, fun discussions and things that happen uh, around the table. Um, but these are also opportunities to reflect on God's presence, on Emmanuel, God with us at the table. And we find that we are also invited to sit and be in relationship with God in Jesus at God's table. And we talked about traveling. Uh, it was shared back uh, several weeks ago, my family tradition when I was growing up was to spend most of Christmas driving. Uh, Maybe some of you will be embarking on travels uh, in the next couple days or so. But traveling is an opportunity for us to reflect on our journey towards Jesus. Uh, That some walk journeys of joy and anticipation while others walk journeys that are hard. Some are forced on journeys. Some are on physical journeys, emotional journeys, spiritual journeys. And all of this traveling is opportunity for us to reflect on on our journey with Jesus. Finding that, that Jesus enters into the story, enters into our journey, walks with us. And then this past Sunday, we talked about giving and receiving gifts, God's gift of revealing God's self to the Magi who were pagan astrologers and encouraging us to consider God's gift to us even as we exchange gifts with one another. 
We also talked about the expectation of God's gift is, is our faith or our faithfulness. That when God sent Jesus and, and stepped into the world, stepped into the mess, that, that the expected response is for us to uh, live faithfully following Jesus, learning what it means to follow Him, to live uh, in, in the way that He called us to live. So there's lots of Christmas traditions. Maybe, I, I don't know what all uh, individual traditions you have, but these traditions are all opportunities for us to really pause, uh, reflect, and think about God, to think about this Christmas story, to think about a story that maybe we've heard lots of times before, but we need opportunities to kind of pause sometimes and, and be reflective about that. In a recent article in Christianity Today, um, writer Timothy Larson addressed the continuing urban legend that Christmas is really just replacing a pre-Christian holiday around the winter solstice. And uh, Larson writes this. He says, well, I have looked into the matter, and I can tell you that it is not true. In order to edit the Oxford Handbook of Christmas, which I had no idea there was an Oxford uh, Handbook of Christmas, I spent over three years systematically reading the scholarship about Christmas, as well as innumerable historical documents, and you can be sure Christmas is Christian. One primary reason for the accusation of paganism is because the date of Christmas seems to have been chosen to align with the winter solstice, a time of pagan holidays. But a winter solstice, however, is a natural, not a religious phenomenon. It was standard practice for ancient societies, including Israel, to set their sacred days by the courses of the sun and the moon. It was the most practical way to mark time. The Bible even teaches that one of the reasons God created the sun and the moon was so that people could mark out the sacred seasons. It is absurd, Larson writes, to assert that a part of creation is inherently pagan overtones. Given that Scripture doesn't give us a date for Christ's birth, the church likely chose December 25th for the celebration because it was an easy way for ordinary people to know when Christmas time was each year and because it was a fitting time for symbolic reasons. The winter solstice is the moment at which the days of maximum darkness end and light becomes stronger and stronger. John writes, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Larson goes on to say, Nor are plant decorations or evergreens pagan. We know this first because nothing that God created is pagan. The Israelites were commanded to celebrate the festival of ingathering by going into the countryside to gather evergreens. Second, we can trace the origin of some claims that traditional evergreen decorations are pagan to 19th century fiction and propaganda. The writer Washington Irving added color to one of his novels by inventing the notion that the church believed mistletoe was tainted by paganism. German nationalists made up the idea that Christmas trees were derived from a Saxon pagan practice because they wanted to turn Christmas into a celebration of German identity. The real origin of the Christmas tree was medieval European sacred plays performed at Christmas time. 
Those plays told the biblical story of redemption and included a decorated evergreen tree which represented the tree of life, and it became a symbol of the season. It makes sense that some European pagan traditions overlap with Christian traditions from the same region. People always express themselves through the cultural resources that are available to them and in the same place. People often have the same resources. Larson ends with this. In the same way, Christmas is not pagan. It is really, truly a celebration of Jesus Christ. Indeed, the theological message of Christmas, the doctrine of the Incarnation, sanctifies this truth that God comes to work in, with, and through our cultures, for unto us a child is born. The last video that we watched talks about how our nativity scenes, the creche, uh, whatever you call it, how that kind of came into being, how, how that practice kind of got started. St. Francis is often credited with the first nativity scenes and Christmas reenactments. He was born in early, the early uh, 1180s in Italy. And maybe that's the reason why so many of our figurines still in most of our nativities seem to represent more of a Middle Ages European rather than an ancient Near Eastern Palestinian Jew. You ever notice that? There's debate on what the first manger scene may have looked like. It's often pictured as a barn. Again, probably more of a European or American tradition than a Middle Eastern tradition. Caves were often used as barns for animals. Many homes were often two stories with animals living in the lower level and, and the family kind of lived above them. And so it's possible, some scholars suggest, that when Mary and Joseph come to uh, Bethlehem looking for the guest room, that there's no room left in the guest room. And so they're forced to uh, dwell and, and sleep and give birth, uh, apparently, uh, where the animals were. We picture the, the shepherds coming. We're told that they, they arrived. There's most certainly probably weren't magi there at that first Christmas morning. Show up sometime later. But what was Francis's purpose in creating this nativity scene? It says God in the Middle Ages Europe was often identified with the massive cathedrals that were being in, uh, constructed. And around Francis at that time, there were uh, three cathedrals that were either had just been uh, constructed or were just being started. Uh, the Pisa Cathedral was consecrated some 60 years before Francis was born. The cathedral in Palermo broke ground just after Francis's birth. Modena Cathedral consecrated just after Francis's birth. These cathedrals were, were meant to convey the, the majesty of God. And so they were enormous. And you, and you pictured uh, the whole world was fitting in this cathedral. It conveyed the majesty and glory of God, which is a good thing. Those are attributes of who God is. But what people started to think about was that God was just removed. God was up there in heaven, and we're down here in the muck and the mire, and, and God doesn't know what it's like to be a peasant. God doesn't know what it's like to be um, out here struggling. 
Because God resides in the cathedral that is beautiful and ornate and filled with gold. And so Francis wanted people to remember that the God of the universe, though He is majestic, holy, transcendent, also became human. Taking on flesh, being born in a backwater town, placed in a feed trough. That God did not remain removed, detached, unaffected by what humans were experiencing. But stepped right into the middle of the muck and the mire. Stepped right into the middle of the darkness. The God of the universe took on flesh and lived among us. That this event happened, the incarnation, real God from real God taking on flesh, Jesus being born, living and showing us how to live in relationship with God and others, dying in the place of sinners, conquering sin and death. This is incredibly important, crucial to our faith. This is the gospel good news. But the danger of the nativity scene, of our mangers. The danger comes when we relegate the story and work of Jesus only to the past. We commemorate, but we don't anticipate what Jesus continues to do in and through us, in and through the church, and in and through the world. The danger of Christmas is always that we have a feel-good celebration and it comes and goes and we go back to work and we go back to school and we go back to our routines and nothing changes. That we haven't soaked in the meaning of this beautiful, beautiful story. God taking on flesh, Jesus coming into our midst. when we fail to see the ways that Jesus continues to come into our own hearts and our lives and into the hearts and lives of our neighbors and friends and family around us. The danger comes when we don't realize that Jesus is coming again and again and again. So what do you do with your manger scene? Do I want you to go home and get rid of it? No, I don't. I want you to set it up. If your tradition has been to to keep baby Jesus out of the scene until Christmas morning, then by all means, add baby Jesus into it. If it's, if it's, you know, you've got the wise men on the other side of the room. I have some friends that the wise men aren't there, so they got to put the wise men on the other side of the room. If that's your tradition, Great. If your tradition is to have the wise men in there, great. But look at your nativity scene. Look at your crash. Look at it. And think about the reality of what it represents. Take a moment and pause with it intentionally. Please understand the historical accuracy of our nativity scenes is uh, usually pretty suspect. Uh, 
but they are reminders of what happened. That God came into the world to redeem, to renew, and to restore. When you look at your nativity set, take time to really contemplate what Emmanuel, God with us, really means. That in the midst of the darkness, at at our darkest moments, Jesus is stepping in. Jesus is bringing light and life. Also take time to consider how Jesus continues to come into our hearts and lives. How God is continuing to birth something new in and through each of us. It's in the waiting, in the sitting at the table, in the traveling, in the giving and receiving gifts, and in our other Christmas traditions, including these nativity scenes. May you take these moments to contemplate Christmas again or anew, or maybe for the first time. Don't see them as distractions or annoyances but little blessings from God to be enjoyed and to spark our deeper consideration of the beauty of the story of Jesus' birth. I'll share one other church tradition that I love is to sing Silent Night. And in a moment we'll be uh, participating in that as we light candles, passing the light from one another uh, to further remember that at our darkest moments, God's light breaks into our world. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, I'm sure Mary and Joseph would beg to differ with the premise of this song. I can't imagine that uh, that first night was actually silent. I actually found out that uh, the person that wrote this uh, Christmas carol uh, actually was uh, taking the cold winter nights to listen. You ever walk out on a, just a cold, crisp night and, and you can just hear everything? And there's science involved in that that I don't understand, but you, you can hear better on those evenings. So in those silent nights, listening for the way God is moving, listening for God's invitation. It's written as a reflection of winter's coldness and the silence that comes along with it. And so as we sing, may we pass our lights as a sign of sharing the good news with those around us. May we learn to listen for God's movement all around us. Just some uh, logistics for our candle lighting. It's always a helpful reminder. If you have your candle lit, you keep your candle straight. And the person that doesn't have their candle lit tilts their candle. It's the best way to keep from dropping wax all over yourself or your neighbor or the floor. Uh, We'll thank you later for that. And something new, because we all have to relearn things. When we go to blow these out, I'm just going to ask you to use some common sense here. 
And when you blow it out, you can just put your hand over the candle so we're uh, keeping the wax contained and our uh, breath to ourselves, okay? So those, that's how we'll approach that. I'm going to invite us, as we pass this flame, to really think not only about the beauty of the candles, but the beauty of the good news story of Jesus about how this message continues to spread, continues to grow, that in the darkness, God's light is shining and moving and growing around us. Let's sing together.